Hear now, priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as you know, this is our third year anniversary. And as tradition, as we have established since we started as a new church, we've always invited a special guest speaker to tell about how great we are. No, I'm just kidding. About how great God is in his goodness to us. And so one of the things that I want to do is really think hard about who we could ask to come and speak for us. And, you know, during this time of COVID, it was not very easy to find uh, someone who was willing and able to come out. But there was one person who came into my heart and into my mind that I thought would be very fitting and very suited to come and preach to you on this Lord's Day. And that is none other than our pastor, James Lee, who is here to deliver God's word. He is currently a student at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, getting his second master's, his THM. And for those of you who may not know, Pastor James was a former pastor of ours before we released him to answer God's call to serve as lifelong missionaries to the people of the Philippines. And so, without further ado, let's welcome back our dear brother, Pastor James Lee. Come on up, brother. Good morning, everyone. It's so great to see some of you uh, in person. Um, I really do miss uh, being able to worship with you all. We don't, wor- we don't miss um, fighting for parking spots, the daily grind of living in New York, you know, the, the pressure the, to having to do everything in a New York minute. We don't miss any of those, but we really do miss all of you guys. And I'm just incredibly uh, thankful uh, for this opportunity to be able to share the word of God with you all uh, this morning. And I'm incredibly humbled and and honored um, for this uh, gracious invitation. So thank you to PJ, to Pastor Charles, and to uh, Deacon Bohr for allowing me to come and and share uh, the word of God with you all this morning. Uh, Shai, Mai, and Ava, they really wanted to come, but last minute we decided to... um, let them stay, um, including Shine, due to the rising cases of COVID. Uh, but we will be back, um, and we really hope to be able to worship you guys as many times as possible before we actually transition out uh, to the Philippines. So uh, hopefully, uh, Lord willing, that we will be able to all worship together in person uh, at least several times before we actually head out uh, to the Philippines. And they send their uh, warm greetings to, to all of you. This morning, as we delve into 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, uh, it is my prayer and hope that this message will not only encourage you, uh, but that it will challenge you to think deeply about your calling as disciples of Jesus Christ, both individually and also corporately. We'll be focusing on three things. Number one, our foundation as Christians. Number two, our identity as Christians. And number three, our calling as Christians. Please join me in a time of prayer once more. God, we love you. We cannot thank you enough for your faithfulness. Thank you for remaining faithful to broken people like us. And we continue to break your heart again and again and again, but yet you remain the same. 
and you remain true to your promises. God, as we delve into this passage together, remind us of your covenantal and redeeming love for your people, but may it also challenge us to, to live intentionally and missionally for the sake of your glory and for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in whose precious name we pray. Amen. Let's jump into our first point together, our foundation as Christians. <clears throat> in verse 10, Peter compares two contrasting states. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter reminds all the believers that, that are scattered throughout Asia Minor in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, which is modern-day Turkey, that they belong to God. And this is something that he wants them to remember. And it was a much-needed reminder for them since they have been faithfully enduring deep suffering and intense persecution for the sake of Jesus Christ. To give you a quick uh, recap um, of the book of Hosea, because Peter is actually quoting the Old Testament prophet Hosea here. The book of Hosea depicts God's covenantal relationship with his people through the metaphor of marriage. And throughout the book of Hosea, we can clearly see two important themes. Number one, God's ongoing covenant faithfulness uh, to his people. And number two, God's, uh, number two, the ongoing covenant unfaithfulness of God's people, which is graphically described as spiritual adultery. God calls Hosea to marry a prostitute named Gomer who represents God's unfaithful people. Nevertheless, Hosea obeys God. Hosea and Gomer have three children whose names have symbolic meanings. God names their firstborn son, Jezreel, who symbolizes God's punishment. God names their second child, No Mercy. And God names their third child, not my people. Not very nice names, right? And this is mentioned in Hosea chapter 1, verses 2 to 9, uh, 2 to 9 and let's read it together. When the Lord spoke through uh, Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take, your, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the, the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. And I will not save them by bow or by sword, by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. The Lord said, Call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. But here's the thing. Even though they continue to break God's heart by committing spiritual Adultery, God remains covenantally faithful to them. And Hosea 2.23 captures the depth of God's covenantal love for his people. And I will have mercy and no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. Peter wants them to remember who they once were apart from Jesus Christ 
and who they are now in Jesus Christ in light of their present circumstances. And because of Jesus Christ, his once and for all finished work on the cross, everything has changed for them and for us. They go from, from not my people to God's people, God's beloved children. They go from, from no mercy to recipients of God's mercy. In fact, in Romans 9, verses 25 through 26, Paul also quotes the same verses from the book of Hosea in order to spotlight God's covenantal and redeeming love for his people. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. You know, being fully aware of the fact that these believers have been suffering for the gospel, Peter intentionally draws their attention to what is real, what is objectively true, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and what that means for them here and now. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 24 to 25, Peter reminds them of what is most important who is at the foundation of their lives, Jesus Christ. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed, for you were strained like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Because of deep suffering and intense persecution, they were being shaken to their core. And for this reason, Peter, uh, Peter emphasizes who is at the foundation of their lives in order to comfort them. In the previous verses, verses 4 to 8, Peter refers to the believers as a spiritual house that is being built up. Peter writes in verse 5, You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And in the following verses, verses 6 through 8, Peter clearly highlights the fact that the chief cornerstone of this spiritual house, the church that is being built up with living stones, the believers, is Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, I'm reading from verse 6 onward, Behold, I'm laying, as, uh, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, for whoever believes in him will not be put to shame, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. As Peter makes it clear, for the unbelievers, Jesus Christ is a stumbling block, whereas for the believers, Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone, the firm foundation. The question that I want to, to ask all of you as you begin 2021. It's a very important question that we should all be asking ourselves, not because we're beginning a new year, but this is an important fundamental question for us as Christians, something we need to consistently and honestly ask ourselves on an ongoing basis. And that question is this, what is at the foundation of your life? Who is at the foundation of your life? Think about that. Let's say you're getting ready to buy a house. 
what do you do? You go through that long and, and detailed and thorough home inspection checklist, right? Why? In order to make sure that you're fully aware of what you're about to purchase. Because you want to make sure that, that you are fully aware of the, the condition of the house that you're about to purchase. And I'm willing to bet that the most important one on that home inspection checklist is to inspect thoroughly the foundation of the house to make sure that it is stable so that it will never ever come crumbling down after you move in. And here's the thing, and I'm sure you, you will all agree, it does not matter how beautiful the house looks on the outside. What really matters is the condition of the house on the inside, especially the foundation of the house which remains hidden from the outside. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27, Jesus uh, spoke a parable. And I think this is a fitting parable um, in light of um, today's passage. Verse 24, I'm reading from 24 onward. Every, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and, and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. With that in mind, I want to ask the same question again. What is at the foundation of your life as a Christian? To be more specific, who is at the foundation of your life as a Christian? Is your life being built up on a solid rock? Or is your light being built up on a sinking sand? It does not matter how high you have built or how much you have built if everything that you have built until now is on a sinking sand. So brothers and sisters, think about this important question as you begin this new year. But this is a question that we all need to ask ourselves again and, and again and again to make sure that our lives are grounded firmly in the gospel. That we are standing upon the solid rock, Jesus Christ, who is our firm foundation. I want to share a picture because I think it accurately captures how we have been feeling during this pandemic. It's a dear God moments. And I'm sure all of you experienced many of these, dear God, dot, 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 speechless. I can't even um, conjure up the, the right words to, to communicate how I'm feeling type of moments, right? There's too much going on. There's just uh, too much happening all at once. And, and, you know, the pressure of just dealing with all the stuff that's going on and, and, and having to adjust and readjust in order to make things work, only to find out you have to adjust and readjust Again, I mean, this is even more challenging for, for, for all the parents, right? Especially with kids. All of us had to face and endure extremely difficult moments where we couldn't even find the right words to express the deep anguish in our hearts. But I do believe that this pandemic has been forcing us to slow down, to pause, and to 
reflect, which is a good thing. And I've been reflecting on what this season of difficulty and uncertainty has revealed. And this is what I've come to as a conclusion that we have become, at least for me, we have become too comfortable with being comfortable as Christians. And you might be wondering what is wrong with being comfortable. And this is very subtle, um, but it does have profound spiritual implications, especially for the way we live our lives as Christians. The more comfortable our lives become, the more our hearts will gravitate towards what brings us comfort. And this absolutely guarantees one thing, and what is that? That our hearts will be consumed with worldly things, which will inevitably cripple our spiritual walk. The more comfortable your life becomes, the more likely you will end up compromising your faith. The more comfortable your life becomes, the less likely you will embrace trials and afflictions for the sake of the gospel. God's focus is not to give us a comfortable life. Nowhere does scriptures say that. And God does not promise that. Instead, God's focus is to make us more like him, to shape us into his image more and more each day. And this ongoing process of sanctification, becoming more like Jesus Christ, is an extremely uncomfortable process. Why? Because it involves things that are not natural to us. What are those things? Dying to ourselves emptying ourselves, denying ourselves, letting go of our functional idols, all our false hopes, securities, and ultimately putting Jesus Christ first in all things in every aspect of our lives. And I do believe that God has been using this pandemic to, to reveal what is at the foundation of our lives. Who is at the foundation of our lives? And then the way we respond to difficulties and uncertainties reveals actually what is at the foundation of our lives. And throughout this pandemic, I mean, we have been um, shaken, right? And we are still being shaken to our core because of COVID, how it's rapidly changing our lives and circumstances. But this extremely uncomfortable season is exposing the foundation of our lives and the root of our faith. The question is this, is your faith deeply rooted in Jesus Christ? Is it firmly grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ? And as you continue this season of uncertainty and difficulty, Remember this, brothers and sisters, that the faith that cannot be shaken is the faith that has been shaken, which leads to growth and maturity as it becomes even more deeply rooted in Jesus Christ. So the question that you need to ask yourselves, the question that I need to ask myself, the question that we all need to ask together as a church is, what is at the foundation of our lives, of our church? Who is at the foundation of our, our lives and of our church? Something to think about. Let's jump to our next point, our identity as Christians. D.A. Carson reminds us that in addition to our individual identity, each of us has a corporate identity. 
And this is something that we often forget. Individual identity says, I'm a child of God. I'm a follower, disciple of Jesus Christ. I'm a Christian. But a corporate identity says, I belong to NCF. But more importantly, I belong to the corporate body of Jesus Christ. In verse 9, Peter points out our corporate identity by making three specific Old Testament references. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Let's unpack these things a little bit. First, Peter refers to them as a chosen race. Now, this covenant promise goes all the way back to Abraham in Genesis 12. God commands Abraham, as you know in verses 1 and 2 of Genesis 12, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. If you read through the Old Testament from Genesis 12 onward, you will be able to uh, see this covenant promise being fulfilled progressively, little by little, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Moses to David. And God enters into a covenant relationship with the people of Israel and continues to remain covenantally faithful to them, even though they continue to break his heart again and again and again. We can clearly see God's covenant faithfulness to the people of Israel throughout the pages of Old Testament. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are also recipients of this covenant promise. In Ephesians 2.4, Paul reminds us that we were chosen in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world. And because of the once-for-all finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we are now God's beloved children. We are now God's beloved sons and daughters. We now belong to him. And this is objectively true, and this is what is real, and this never, ever changes. Now, Peter refers to them also as a royal priesthood and a holy nation, and this is a direct reference to Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 through 6. And God spoke these words to the people of Israel through Moses before giving them the Ten Commandments. I read from verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my uh, covenant, you shall be my treasure possession among the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Being a kingdom of priests and a holy nation meant being set apart as God's holy people, and that meant something living according to the commandments of God, embodying the holiness of God as God's holy people. But I want us to spend a little bit more time on royal priesthood and its implications, not just for them, but also for us as Christians. You know, in the Old Testament, priests were mediators between God and his people. And then the main function of the priest was to stand in between God and his people, to stand before God on behalf of God's people. Now, Peter refers to all the believers as a royal priesthood, 1 Peter 2.9, but here, Peter is not saying that every believer is called to function like, as a priest in this specific Old Testament context. Actually, there's no need for that. Why? Because we already have a great high priest. His name is 
Jesus Christ, which is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, right? Here's the thing. In Romans 15, 16, Paul refers to evangelism, gospel ministry, as fulfilling the priestly service of the gospel of God. And this is what he says, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. What does this have to do with us as believers? All believers are called to faithfully carry out their priestly duty by ministering to all unbelievers whom God has already put in their lives. And let's be honest, every single one of us has an unbelieving family member or a friend or a coworker or a neighbor. But when we neglect them, whom God has already placed in our lives, in our personal oikos, whether intentionally or unintentionally, we are actually neglecting our God-given priestly duty as Christians. And when we minister to them, we mediate the grace of God to them. I think Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller is absolutely right when he wrote, I quote, there are some needs only you can see, there are some hands only you can hold, there are some people only you can reach. And these are the very people that God has intentionally, strategically placed in your own personal oikos. Always remember that there are people only you can reach. Now with that in mind, let's faithfully carry out our priestly duty by living missionally, by sharing the gospel intentionally, Let's point them and lead them to the beautiful Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is our calling as Christians. And that is our calling corporately as the body of Jesus Christ. I want to draw your attention to the fact that Peter also refers to all the believers in 1 Peter 2.5 as a holy priesthood. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, priests uh, fulfilled an important function of standing before God on behalf of his people in the context of worship since they were unworthy to enter into God's holy presence. But in the New Testament, we no longer have to worship in this manner, and you and I both know why. Because of the once for all finished work of Jesus Christ, the sinless Savior who became sin for us on the cross, we can now go before him freely to worship him as God's beloved children. Through the body that was broken, through the precious blood that was shed, we can now draw near to the throne of grace with confidence and enter into God's holy presence freely as his beloved children who have been forgiven and redeemed. But here, Peter's intention is not to outline the, the important priestly functions. The New Testament scholar D.A. Carson offers a helpful insight here, and I quote, all of this had to do with the priest function, but there is one uh, another element. Priests in ancient Israel were specifically sanctified, particularly set aside for God. Yet there was a broader sense in, in which all Israelites were set aside for God, God's royal priests. The focus is not so much on function as on 
privilege. What's Peter's main point here? Peter wants us to ponder this. The privilege of being a royal, holy priesthood. The privilege of being a holy nation. The privilege of being a people for God's own possession. The privilege of being a chosen race before the foundation of the world. Beloved NCF, do you consider it a privilege to be a child of God? Do you consider it a privilege to be a follower, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Do you consider it a privilege that you now belong to God? Do you consider it a privilege that God has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light so that you can now shine brightly for his glory? Do you consider it a privilege that God has called you to live for him? Do you consider it a privilege that God has commissioned you so that you can fulfill the Great Commission, with the power and the resource that he will provide for you. This leads to my next point, last point, our calling as Christians. You know, in verse 9, Peter clearly indicates the purpose of our calling as Christians. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Here's the thing that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Always remember the fact that we have been set apart for this specific task of proclaiming the excellencies, praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have been created to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We are called to worship him in every aspect of our lives because all of life is worship and we are called to make much of Jesus Christ in every aspect of our lives. Habakkuk 2.14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, proclaiming the excellencies and praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light means that we are called to actively participate in this endeavor for his glory. But how do we do that? By living missionally, by living um, for Jesus Christ and sharing the gospel with every opportunity that comes. Notice how Jesus prays for all the believers in John chapter 17, verses 14 through 18, which is part of Jesus' high priestly prayer. I'll read from verse 14. I've given them your word that the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. I want to highlight two things. Verses 14 and 16, they are not of the world. Brothers and sisters, we are not of this world. We have been set apart as a chosen race, as a holy priest, as a holy nation, a people for God's own special possession. And that means that our lives ought to look radically different from unbelievers around us. Verse 18, they are sent into the world. What does this imply? That all believers are on a mission. 
We have been commissioned to fulfill the Great Commission. We have been called to proclaim the excellence, his praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. I think Edmund Clowney, uh, who used to teach, uh, he, he sums up everything in um, one sentence for us here. The come of Christ separates us from the world to his name. The go of Christ sends us to the world in his name. And this is the dynamic that we need to remember as we continue to live here for God's kingdom and for his glory. Brothers and sisters, as you begin this new year, it is my prayer and hope that this new year will be filled, absolutely filled with many gospel moments that will draw you closer to God. I really pray and hope that this new year will be filled with many gospel moments that will expand your capacities to know God more intimately, that will deepen your love for God. And as you begin your fourth year as a church, as a community of believers, I want to remind you to remember these things and by God's grace, put them into action. And this also applies to me as well. Seek what is eternal, not what is comfortable. Seek what is eternal, not what is comfortable. You know, as we begin this new year, our goal shouldn't be going back to what was once normal, what was once comfortable before this pandemic hit. Instead, we should all be focusing on living missionally for what is eternal, laying down our lives for what is eternal, being faithful stewards of all the talents and the gifts and the resources that the God has given us and using them well and wisely for his glory, for what is eternal. Please remember that there's no greater privilege than knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Making him known and making much of him ought to be our greatest joy, individually, but also together, corporately, as a church. With that in mind, live missionally, live intentionally, so that all your unbelieving family members, friends, coworkers, neighbors will be able to see the beautiful Savior in and through you. Also, continue to gather well and scatter well, which you guys have been doing so well. Why? Here's the thing. Each time you gather together to worship God corporately, I really pray and hope that it'll remind you of your desperate need for Jesus Christ and for each other. And as you continue to come and worship together corporately, pray that, um, that they will remind you to make sure that Jesus Christ is at the center, at the foundation of your life at all times. That each time you come together, that you guys will be reminded who is at the foundation of your life, of this church, Jesus Christ. And also as you scatter, be fully present where God has called you to be. With that in mind, incarnate, embody the love of Jesus Christ to those around you. 
embody the beauty of the gospel as you live intentionally for the glory of God and also surround yourselves with things that will stir your affections for Jesus Christ, things that will stir, uh, cause you to rejoice in the God of your salvation. So the people around you, especially your unbelieving family members, friends, coworkers, and neighbors, they will know that there's something special and different about you. And what is that? That you're in love with Jesus, that he's your Lord and Savior. And let that be how they see you as you continue to live faithfully in this manner. Also, I want to challenge you with this question. Are you willing to become more uncomfortable for the sake of the gospel? And you may be thinking now, it is already too uncomfortable and you want us to get even more uncomfortable. But that's my challenge to, to you individually, but also as a church, also for me and my family as we continue to prepare for uh, full-time missions in the Philippines. Are we willing to become more uncomfortable for the sake of gospel ministry? Or are we just gonna simply go back to living comfortably in our own bubble? Will you step out in faith for his glory? John Keith Falconer, a Scottish missionary, once said, I have but one candle of life to burn, and I would rather burn, burn it out in a land filled with darkness than in a land flooded with light. Are you willing to shine for his glory in the midst of darkness, even if that means your life will become even more uncomfortable. Something to think about as we begin this new year, as you begin your fourth year as a church. If we consider ourselves to be followers, disciples of Jesus Christ, then we ought to take the Great Commission seriously so that it does not become the great omission in our lives. And I do want to ask a challenging question, which is this. Since accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, have you led someone to Christ? And I'm not asking this question to guilt trip you. Since becoming a Christian, have you led someone to Christ? Think about that. In Romans 16.5, Paul specifically names Epinetus. Verse 5, greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Paul remembers him. And I do believe that he doesn't just remember him as a person, but the, being able to share in the joy of salvation when Epinetus accepted Christ for the first time as they welcomed them into the body of believers. Can I invite you and challenge you to pray for your own Epinetus this year? But not just this year, for the rest of your life, that you will live for Jesus, and by God's grace, that you'll be able to lead many people to Christ. In your personal oikos, you do have unbelieving family members, friends, coworkers, neighbors. Who can be your Epinetus? Now with that in mind, I want to challenge you to live missionally and 
intentionally. Also, may you continue to be a church that exists for the glory of God. Don't forget that outward focus, but also for the good of others, the outward focus. In 1 Corinthians 16.9, Paul mentions that a wide door for effective work, gospel ministry, has opened for him in the city of Ephesus. Pray the same prayer for NCF as you continue to carry out gospel ministry in this city, New York City, that God will open more doors for gospel ministry right here where God has called you to be. We need to pray for that intentionally, individually and corporately. Also, I pray that you will continue to be a church that seeks the shalom of all the neighborhoods and communities that are within your reach in New York City, as your vision statements clearly indicate that you will continue to be a church that faithfully lives out Micah 6 a do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God, that you will shine the light of the gospel brightly in the midst of darkness. I really pray and hope that you will continue to be that church that shines the gospel brightly so that people will see this light of the gospel will be drawn to the beautiful Savior, Jesus Christ. J.I. Peckham reminds us that the Christian model should not be let go and let God, but trust God and get going. I really like that. See, you and me, we are agents, ambassadors of marvelous light. But do you know also what that means for us as Christians and as a church, that there are pockets of darkness around us. Perhaps you already know where these pockets of darkness are. But in faith, as you step out for Christ and his glory, I pray that this year and, and continuously, as you continue to live for Jesus Christ, both individually and corporately, that you will be able to find dark, these uh, pockets of darkness around you. But not only that, go stand there, even though you may get uncomfortable, but ultimately for his glory, as you remember who is at the foundation of your life, as you remember who you are, your identity, but as you remember the calling that he has placed on you individually, but also corporately as a church. Let's pray. God, what a joyous occasion this is to be able to remember three years of your faithfulness love and grace and mercy that you have shown to NCF. We acknowledge that, that you are the head over this church. And God, I entrust NCF into your hands, that it, as they enter um, into their fourth year of existence, Lord, 